It's Friday, November 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Big shakeup at the Pentagon this week as President Trump fired Defense Secretary Mark Esper and three other top Pentagon officials were also replaced. The exit had been expected for months as the relationship between Esper and the White House deteriorated. Esper had his first public break with the president when he wanted to use active duty troops in D.C. to put down violent protests after the death of George Floyd. Megan Myers, Pentagon Bureau Chief at the Military Times, had a conversation with the former defense secretary and tells us why he said he was no yes man. Next, the FDA this week gave the emergency use authorization to Eli Lilly for their monoclonal antibody COVID treatment. It is similar to the treatment that President Trump received when he was sick, and it is aimed at keeping mild cases from turning more serious. The process of getting this treatment developed and approved was difficult in that the company also had to deal with the pandemic at the same time. They had to trim down their staff, work remotely in some cases, and the chief of the lab had to use a robot with an iPad attached to it so he could patrol that lab. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how Eli Lilly got it done. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The option to use active duty forces in a law enforcement role should only be used as a matter of last resort and only in the most urgent and dire of situations. We are not in one of those situations now. I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act. Joining us now is Megan Myers, Pentagon Bureau Chief at the Military Times. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about Defense Secretary Mark Esper. On Monday, President Donald Trump fired him over Twitter. He announced that Chris Miller, who was previously the National Counterterrorism Center Director, would step in as acting Defense Secretary. But there at the Military Times, you guys got a chance to speak to Mark Esper and talk about his time there and what kind of the tensions that were going on between him and the White House. He didn't mention that he was nobody's yes man while he was there. So tell us a little bit about your conversation with former Defense Secretary Mark Esper. So it had been rumored for months that uh, either maybe Esper would resign or the president would fire him. Um, As the election got closer, it kind of became apparent that Nobody wanted to uh, influence the election either way with, uh, you know, throwing that national security position into turmoil. So they kind of tabled it. But, of course, one business day after, uh, you know, media outlets called the election, Trump decided, all right, well, Esper's out. Technically, Esper got a call from um, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows a few minutes before the tweet went out. So he had a little bit of a heads up that it was coming. But in a larger sense, he had a feeling. The feeling was that Trump would fire him after the election. But he was very clear that he didn't want to resign. And the reason for that was he felt like he was doing good work here and was as responsibly and strategically as he could, trying to implement the president's um, request, the president's commands, um, despite sometimes uh, having some tension over whether, over his judgment, really. Yeah. One of the quotes in the article specifically was saying, you know, I'm not trying to make anybody happy. I'm just trying to fill what the commander in chief wants. And that's a tough line to balance there. You mentioned also in the article that he was dubbed Yesper by some of his critics. But that was one thing that he really was strong on, saying that, you know, I wasn't a yes man for the president. Mm -hmm. Well, he was very conscious, um, both in office and and, and anticipating leaving office. He was conscious of his legacy and the way that he was portrayed. And so from his point of view, 
he was not carrying the president's water. He was trying to do what was best for the Defense Department while carrying out what the president had asked him to do. Um, And he resented being called Jesper because that nickname kind of came about pretty soon after he very publicly broke with the president and said that he did not believe that uh, the Insurrection Act was warranted in D.C. to um, control protests and the rioting in front of the White House. Um, And that was directly contrary to what the president had been threatening for days at that point. Um, So he felt like he really had put his foot down. He had not kowtowed. Um, But of course, in the larger view of, you know, people watching what was going on between them, it really did look like the president says jump and, you know, Esper said how high, even though that's not how he saw it. Yeah, one of the other points of contention, I guess, too, was when uh, he approved some of that military money to be moved over to build President Trump's border wall. I guess that's another point where critics would say he was a yes man to that because, you know, obviously when that happened, that was just huge news. And a lot of people were making something about it because they were moving money away from military construction projects. Right. And, you know, from from Esper's uh, standpoint, that was a perfectly legal request. Um, And, you know, in the military, in this chain of command, even between these two top civilians, you know, the commander in chief issues you a lawful order and you follow it. And if you don't want to follow it, you quit. But there's no responding to him and saying, no, I'm not going to do this. You have to deal with the fallout, whatever the fallout is. And if it is past your red line, then you submit your resignation. But from his point of view, that was a lawful order, even if some found it, you know, distasteful. And so he carried it out. Um, in other situations, you know, when he felt a little more unsure about what the president's um, the president was asking him, he would try to, as responsibly as possible, um, fulfill what the president uh, had asked him to do or give him the best advice, the widest range of advice, the most options that he could come up with um, and try to finesse the situation a little bit. One of the top priorities for Mark Esper was the national defense strategy. It was a shift involving North Korea, Russia, China. How did that play out for him? I think he is proud of the work that he was able to do, sort of the groundwork he was able to lay after um, James Mattis quit the SecDef job. Um, Basically, at this point, you know, it was a lot of writing the NDS into the budget, making sure that the first, you know, layers of groundwork got laid and were paid for and were also supported by people on Capitol Hill, people in the White House, the people who have control over how these things happen. And his goal was to uh, affect irreversible change for the national defense strategy so that when he was gone, when the Trump administration was gone, uh, they would be on a path that someone couldn't just come in and, um, you know, immediately sweep away. And he felt like he had accomplished that. Mark Esper did say that he was going to be holding in tough. He didn't ever expected to quit, even when he kind of heard rumblings that he might be fired and all. Although he did say that there was one time that he came close to quitting, and that was surrounding Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. This was after all the testimony in the impeachment proceedings. Right. So he said basically a few months after um, Vinman testified, there rumors started going around that, uh, you know, Vinman had had been selected to go to the Army War College and he was supposed to be, you know, he was expected to be uh, promoted to colonel. But then the Army had not put out its um, colonel promotion list, which is, you know, for for officers, the Army at every rank, the Army will put out a list periodically um, after they've made their selections for who's promotable. And that list was held up 
and the only explanation, the explanation that Vinman's camp was giving and that some other experts were giving was that this was being held up as retribution for what Vinman had said about the president. And behind the scenes, the secretary of the army had approved it. Esper says that he had approved it. And he said, if he's qualified, go for it and we'll see what happens. Um, in the end, Vinman ended up, uh, ended up retiring uh, just to kind of get out of the fray. But Esper said, if the White House had overturned my decision to allow him to be promoted to colonel, I would have resigned. That would have been a red line for him. He would have seen that as unethical and something that he was not going to be involved in. So what was the major dysfunction between Esper and the White House. You had mentioned using military forces to kind of clear crowds. This was, you know, when the George Floyd protests were happening. I think Mark Esper was one of the people that was walking with the president. Later, he had mm-hmm. to say, I didn't really know that that was the purpose of it, et cetera, et cetera. I know that was a big point of contention, but what was the big major dysfunction between them? That was a lot of it. I think the probably the biggest thing they butted heads about or that there was tension about would be Esper saw uh, his job, his role as very apolitical. He saw the Department of Defense as apolitical, despite him obviously being a Trump political appointee and therefore serving at the pleasure of the president and, um, you know, and and essentially put in this job to do the president's bidding, you know, for lack of a, a more graceful term. Um, but Esper really tried to stay out of politics, tried to um, take the president's orders and enact them in the most thoughtful way possible. And he really resented that he went to the White House to have a meeting and ended up in this walk across Lafayette Square after it had been forcibly cleared, uh, you know, using tear gas and rubber bullets, uh, and that he was then, you know, asked to take a picture with the president in front of this church, and which was an incredibly political move. He did not like being used that way. And then, of course, he's not going to come out and say that because he doesn't want to get fired. So his kind of next step was to come into the Pentagon briefing room, you know, the following day and say, I don't think that the Insurrection Act is necessary for what we are seeing in Washington, D.C. right now. And that really angered the president. And from there, you know, things just kind of unraveled. Yeah, I mean, even the Confederate flag became a big issue when they were trying to ban that on military bases and all. He issued an order that, you know, also banned, uh, you know, rainbow flags and things like that. And then that became an issue that he got accused of banning that, not just the Confederate flag. So despite his best attempts to stay apolitical, he was kind of always dragged back into it. What's next for him? Obviously, he'll probably enjoy a little bit of time off, but does he have any plans on the horizon? You know, I don't know. I didn't get a chance to ask him that in the interview. I think the assumption has widely been that he will go back into the defense industry, which is where he was immediately before being in the Pentagon. But his prior resume also involves working at a think tank, in, a conservative think tank in D.C., working on Capitol Hill. So he kind of has all sorts of options. It really just depends on where he lands and who who is willing to take on his expertise with, of course, the baggage of him just having served in this administration. Megan Myers, Pentagon Bureau Chief at the Military Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And so in this case, they're using a solution that includes Chinese hamster ovary cells. And what they're doing is they're in this solution They start with a small amount, but eventually it helps grow a very large amount of the antibodies. Joining us now is Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal. 
Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to talk about this drug from Eli Lilly. It's a COVID-19 drug that is very similar to the one that President Trump took when he was receiving treatment. It's an uh, antibody treatment, and the FDA just authorized emergency use of it. Peter, if you can help us out, uh, tell us a little bit more about how this drug works and then the difficulty in actually manufacturing this, because Eli Lilly had to also go through a shutdown throughout the pandemic and the way they changed their practices to be able to still get this out is pretty amazing. So, uh, Peter, tell us what we know about this drug. Sure. So the drug, I believe, is pronounced Bamlanivimab. So this drug is called a monoclonal antibody and it's from Eli Lilly and it's something that's essentially an engineered version of the immune system antibodies that are produced in response to the coronavirus. And so, and the way that they developed it was they analyzed a blood sample from an early survivor of COVID-19 and they kind of isolated what they thought were the most potent antibodies in that blood sample. And then they basically cloned them in a factory to turn them into a pharmaceutical treatment. And so, what has happened over the past 24 hours is that the FDA has authorized the emergency use of this antibody. And in particular, in patients with mild to moderate COVID-19, so people who are not in the hospital, who aren't so severe, but they want it to be prioritized for people that, that they may have mild to moderate symptoms of COVID-19, but for certain reasons, they might be at higher risk of worsening to severe disease where they did end up in the hospital. And so that would include people, say, over the age of 65 or people who are overweight or have other chronic conditions that might put them at higher risk. And tell me a little bit about how they make this, because we're talking about the difficulties and we'll get into how the workers there had to adjust to all this. But these drugs are grown in living cells. They're fed nutrients. They're put in stainless steel tanks with ovary cells from Chinese hamsters. I mean, this is like crazy science stuff when you're really talking about it. It's always fascinating to hear about the source material for some of the ingredients that go into the pharmaceuticals. I think one of the vaccines has a component that's derived from, I think, tree bark. But in any case, yeah, in this case, this lily antibody, this is actually a fairly common manufacturing method for this type of drug where it's grown in living cells and they, they use a medium, they use a solution that sort of allows the protein of interest to proliferate, to spread and, and replicate. And so in this case, they're using a solution that includes Chinese hamster ovary cells. And what they're doing is they're in this solution, they start with a small amount, but eventually it helps grow a very large amount of the antibodies. And it's all the same antibody, but it's just a large amount of it. And so they grow that in large amounts and then they purify it and then package it in vials so that the amount necessary in each vial to treat one patient. And now tell me a little bit about the process that the company had to go through to actually do this. We just talked about how complicated that process is and how very specific it is. But at the plant where they were making this production, you know, they had maybe about 65 workers to begin with, they had to whittle that down to 20 or 30. And then everybody's working remotely. Like I said, they had to go through this and make this drug for the pandemic while the pandemic was ongoing. You know, as everyone knows, a lot of companies in all industries have had to make a lot of adjustments. Having people work from home 
that sort of thing. And so the drug companies have to do that too, but then they're the ones who are actually working on the drugs and vaccines that hopefully will be effective in ending the pandemic. And so they have to do that while taking these steps to prevent the spread of the virus in their facility and to protect their workers. And so in Lily's case, they're based in Indianapolis and they, back in March, I think when all the, the lockdowns were starting, they sent a significant majority of their employees to work from home. So that did include a lot of office jobs, but it also included scientists, people that work in research labs, and it included, in some cases, uh, manufacturing workers. And so the idea was to reduce the number of people on site to as low as they could go. But obviously, they're still going to need some people on site, both to work on the COVID project, but also to continue to make other drugs that Eli Lilly makes. And so they just tried to keep that at a lower number so that there'd be fewer people there to transmit the virus or to be just to be exposed. And yeah, they had to just make a lot of adjustments. One part of the, the of the manufacturing process was taking what was manufactured in these big steel tanks out of the solution that I just talked about, and then putting the final product into vials. And they bought this mobile lab that basically looks like a tractor trailer, but it's customized uh, to sit outside the factory because they felt this was the quickest way to do this. And that was where they actually put the drug into vials and they found that it took some practice and training to get the employees used to working in close proximity, even with protective gear, because, you know, at that point earlier in the year, people had become so accustomed to keeping distant from everybody. And they just, people were a little leery about it. Yeah. I mean, even one of the doctors Uh, was rolling around on a little robot with an iPad attached to it just so they can live stream things back and forth. So what are the next steps for them? The U.S. is going to start distributing this as soon as it can. I think they started saying as soon as this week, they were going to start distributing some of it. What's next for them? The federal government has signed a supply contract where they're buying 300,000 doses of this Lilly antibody. And because they're buying it, they're a customer, essentially, they're going to allocate it. And so right now, I think there's about 80,000 doses that are ready to go in fairly short order. And the federal government has already made decisions about which states they'll go to or or in what amounts to each state. And they they make that decision by looking at where this community spread is is the worst, basically. So states like Wisconsin, Illinois have very high rates right now. And so they're getting a fairly high number of doses. And then Eli Lilly is increasing its manufacturing of the antibody. And so they're going to try to have many more doses by the end of the year. And it'll be a situation where, at least for the time being, the federal government will see how many new doses are produced in a given week and then parcel them out to various parts of the country. And then state officials, local health departments would be in charge of figuring out, you know, what hospitals or say, infusion clinics should get the doses and then eventually into patients. Well, I mean, good news on all that front. Hopefully we can get this squared away very quickly and uh, and get it to uh, people that really need it and help them out that way. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.